This episode is sponsored by our friends at Musicbed. Find the perfect song for your films with a highly curated roster featuring hundreds of artists, bands, and composers. As a good listener, you can get your first month of subscription free or 20% off a single song purchase. Just enter promo code GOOD when you check out. This episode is sponsored by Film Supply. Film Supply is one of the most highly curated stock footage catalogs you'll find available today. Finish your next project faster with footage that matches your creative vision. Go to filmsupply.com for more info. And just for good listeners, they're offering three free clips when you sign up and 20% off your next project with coupon code GOODPODCAST. Also this season, we're continuing to give away a ton of content over at Patreon, sharing treatments, behind-the-scenes photos, and ways to interact with our guests from each episode. To become a patron, check out patreon.com slash goodthepodcast. Now, here's the show. Hey guys, my name's Christian Schultz, and this is Good. Alright guys, I'm going to start this week's episode by reading a list of artists that this week's guest, Joseph Kahn, has gotten to work with. From very early on till now, uh, he's worked with bands like Korn, Backstreet Boys, Rob Zombie, Destiny's Child, Wu-Tang, Moby, Britney Spears, Aerosmith, U2, Eminem, Blink-182, 50 Cent, Lady Gaga, Maroon 5, and Taylor Swift. And that's maybe like a third of the artists that he's worked with. Um, Alongside all of those music videos, he's also been behind uh, some amazing feature films and short films uh, going all the way back to 2004 with a movie called Torque. And then he made a movie called Detention in 2011 and then a Power Rangers film in 2015. And then his latest film is a film called Bodied, which is produced by Eminem and starring Caleb Worthy. So I don't want to linger anymore. I just want to get right into the episode and hope you guys enjoy my interview with director Joseph Kahn. Are you uh, kind of in between stuff right now or gearing up for something? Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm uh, posting on a video and prepping, um, you know, the next job and, you know, bidding on the next one after that. Right. The cycle. Yeah. Do you, um, do you try and kind of keep a level of work throughout the year that like you're, you're not trying to do more than this or less than that? Do you have like a sweet spot? I try to work, um, all the time. Yeah. Like I don't like any breaks whatsoever. I always like to be working on something and, you know, again, in our business work means you're posting something, you're prepping something and you're bidding on something. And that has been my life for the last 25, 20, 25, 30 years. Right. Where did it uh, start for you? I know you're, you've been a, a huge music video influence for a long time, but is that where it started for you? Uh, kind of. Well, yeah, I guess so. I don't know. It's, you know, like, um, people always ask me, did I, did I start as a, as a, as a filmmaker? Did I want to make mm-hmm. movies or make music videos? I think I'm of the first generation, you know, dating myself. 
that took movies and music videos kind of similarly. Um, because I remember the first time I ever heard a rock and roll song, it was Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll. But I didn't hear it on the radio. I actually watched it on a music video um, on television. And it was it was before MTV. It was, it was on some weird Saturday morning like music video show thing that happened on some weird UHF channel or something. Mm-hmm. And I remember that's the first time I actually saw and heard rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And, and so for my entire life, which is not unusual for uh, this generation now, but for my generation, I think I was like the first person to actually experience in uh, music from that perspective where there was always a visual attached to it. Mm-hmm. And so there was no differentiation in terms of how I consumed um, filmmaking. Like for me, that thing where things moved in your head and, and that particular art form where things were edited right. and there's a camera involved, uh, music videos and films were the same thing to me. Yeah. What were the kind of the early filmmakers that you were uh, referencing or watching for inspiration? Well, um, always Spielberg, because mm-hmm. I think the earliest uh, movie that I can remember is Jaws. Um, and that's the first thing I, I remember actively watching in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Spielberg has been there my whole life and his sense of blocking and editing and framing and, and storytelling is, is, um, is something that I, I've always ingested and, and thought of film. If I think of movies, I think mm-hmm. of Spielberg. Right, right. And then, you know, as you get into your teenage years, you, you, you look at all the others, whether it's Kubrick or Scorsese. Um, I was, had a huge Sam Raimi phase at one point in my life. Um, and then by the time I got into, uh, my high school years in the, in the late eighties, I was really watching MTV a shit ton. And that's when I was really getting into all the propaganda directors like David Fincher, Dominic Senna, uh, Michael Bay. Um, but I remember back then they didn't put director's credits on videos Right. So I had to identify people by their styles and just be predictive right. of what it is. And I, and I could feel the nuance between a David Fincher style of shooting versus a Dominique Senna style of shooting. And, and I think that's where I, I actively became more conscious of how music videos were made because of just trying to identify who was making them by, by guessing. Right. It's, it's funny because you, that you say those filmmakers, cause a lot of your early stuff, um, it felt like you were sort of experimenting with a lot of every kind, every time that you had a music video to come to you, it was kind of like an experiment into something new. Was that like really intentional from the get go or, or was it just how you naturally are? No, I, um, I, I definitely, uh, want to experiment all the time, um, and try things out. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that's kind of what it is, right? I just want to, I just want to experiment. Well, take me back a little bit to like, you know, the way that music videos used to work as far as like treatments and like getting a director attached to it, how is that different from, from these days? I don't think there's any difference. I think it's exactly the same. I think what it is, is that there's a corporation, mm-hmm. they need to sell records. Uh, they, uh, they need to make money off somebody writing music and, and performing it. Uh, they give a little bit of money to the, the artist. Um, the artist may interface with their marketing department or may not. And then ultimately they need a visual to let people know about it. So like on that core fundamental, you know, like process, the -hmm. video director comes in. And so essentially you're always going to pitch. You're always going to have to get a budget approved and you're always going to have to negotiate what that creative is and see if it fits the, um, the, the uh, agenda of 
both the artist and everyone trying to sell that artist. So, uh, however that happens, whether it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, the artist has more say, or the management has more say, or the record company has more say, or someone's fucking cousin in the, in the band has right. more say, uh, it's, it's all negotiated and it's fluctuates and that's just the process. Right. Do you find that you have changed the way that you personally write treatments from, from then to now? Oh, yeah. Obviously there's a lot more knowledge and technique that you have behind your belt, but just creatively, is there a difference? Yeah. It, the, it's gotten much shittier because I have to do these stupid visuals now, which I never had to do before because mm. now everybody comes in and, and shows. I mean, like here's the thing, like it used to be that like, um, there was a period of time, uh, right when I entered the, prof- I mean, there's a period of time where I was non-professional doing music videos and I wasn't really part of the system. Right. Uh, but by the time I started entering the system, it was the time where Spike Jones and Mark Romanek and, yep. And it was that big explosion of early '90s uh, propaganda mo- uh, uh, satellite films stuff, and uh, they were those guys were really into references. Uh, but they did it for themselves. They would do these like workbooks mm. where they would reference and almost copy other photographers and things like that. Right. But they would never show it in the treatment. The treatment was just written. And now today, uh, everybody shows that shit, right? You literally just put a lookbook together and, and show exactly. Some people even like put together moving graphics on websites and, and you show, you show everything. And that stuff is super fucking annoying for me because, you know, the way I work, um, I do reference things sort of, but I'm kind of lazy. And I think that's what makes it so interesting for me because I'll go, Oh, let's make it kind of like that photograph. But uh, I'm not, I'm too lazy to actually pull the reference up and I'm too lazy to like really pull the reference of the movie I'm thinking about. So I'll just sort of redo it in the way that I think it is. And then it comes out more original because you're not actually copying something you're influenced, but it's so discombobulated and you have a lazy filmmaker that isn't really trying to copy it down to the T. You're just sort of putting that and it make it mixed in with other things you're thinking about and other emotions, whatever you ate that day. Right. And then something new comes out of it. Now people just want to fucking replicate exactly what you put on the page. And that shit is dangerous. Mm. I'm surprised there aren't more lawsuits going on because of that stuff. Right. So, I mean, is there, um, is there sort of like a reason that you kind of like the mystery still? Is that, are you trying to protect maybe some of the originality by not sort of sharing it even to the artist sometimes? Um, uh, sort of, yeah. The more, more you lay your cards on the table, the more everyone sort of can comment on it. And the best situation is when you get with an artist and they go, I trust you. And that's happened to me, uh, a couple times in my, in my, um, in my life. And that's usually when you do your best work possible because they just Mm -hmm. need complete creative freedom and you can just improvise and do crazy things and, and just go right. Like, uh, Moby would do that. Like, I mean, I, I don't, I think, um, I think for We Are Made of Stars, I didn't even write a treatment. I think uh, he just said, I just told him, look, I'm just going to get a bunch of celebrities in this and you're going to wear an astronaut suit. And he said, okay, yeah. go. <laughs> um, I, I think um, when it comes to uh, my my antipathy towards this type of stuff, it's also time consuming. I hate writing treatments, you know? Like, like I've been doing this for 30 years, so a good chunk of my time is just walking around with the burden of a treatment over my shoulders, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's hard enough to like, come up with the words that you got to put in treatment. Cause I write all my own music video concepts, uh, like every single one of them. And remember, like I've done like over 500 music videos. Right. So that means I've won 500 bids. Right. right. But that means I'll, I've also lost probably five other concepts <laughs> for every one that I win. So I've mm-hmm. written like 1500 fucking concepts at this point. Right. Like, and maybe even more, I don't know, you know, 
So I got to keep writing this stuff, but now I've got to also put visuals to this shit. So, so I'm going to spend three days thinking about this thing that's racking my brains out. And then I'm going to spend another fucking two days putting visuals together. It's a fucking pain in the ass. So I want to make a video, you know? Right. Yeah. That's interesting that you, can you look back at your old work and see sort of like, like try to piece together, like, what was I into at the time? You know, like early on, there was a lot of like car crash stuff. I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? And oh, yeah, yeah. Like, and then it went to maybe a little bit more CG stuff. And then it, you were kind of in this like celebrity phase where it was like a lot of CG. You know, do you see your old work and be like, you know, can you look at it sort of uh, humbly or is it like, yeah, that was that was fucking rad? I'm definitely changing and I right. change, you know, every year a little bit. And then when you look at your life after five years, you realize you're not even the same person. Mm -hmm. uh, and then after 10 years, you're like, who the fuck was that person 10 years ago? And then five, and you think you figure it out. Like for instance, I remember when I was in my twenties, I thought I had everything figured out, right? I thought I was the smartest guy in the universe. And then you turn 30 and you suddenly realize that person that was 25 was a complete dickhead. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you turn 35 and you're like, holy shit, that person that was 30 was a complete fucking dickhead. And then you turn 40 and you're like, no, those people were complete assholes. And every five years, you just realize right. the previous version of yourself was an asshole and you think that you finally figured it out and you just never do. It's just this, I think life is a process of figuring out you're an asshole five years ago until you die. You know? <laughs> so when I look at my old work, I can see different assholes, you know, like there's the asshole that like car crashes and there's the asshole that was really into uh, fame at one point. And there's the asshole that was really into sex. And there's the asshole that, you know, was just it, it, trying to be pretentious and trying to be a fucking 2008 fucking uh, indie filmmaker at some point. I don't know, you know? Um, right. Yeah, I mean, when I look back at my work, I see I see both the good and the bad. I see the, the flaws, um, I, but I see the good of the intent of what I was trying to earn, learn and, right. and experiment with. And and what you do as a filmmaker is you you take both. You figure out what you did wrong, you figure out what you did did right and just build on it. Could you take me through um, sort of like the, if you can remember, obviously, but um, sort of the pre-production or like the, the concepting phase for Southside by chance? Oh, yeah. Uh, so uh, I was, uh, now you're very lucky on that one because as you get older, um, your memories get squashed because I really mm -hmm. believe that your brain can only fit so much uh, information. Right. That's why you dream. That's a theory that you dream. And then you expunge a lot of things that are like unnecessary during the day and you only mm -hmm. collect long-term memory. So as you get older, your brain, I think like expunges a lot of like the, like the, the stuff that's not important and right. only remember something and you can't even remember things correctly. But I do remember this about uh, Southside. Um, I was in the middle of three videos. Um, I believe it was, um, Destiny's Child, uh, Say My Name, uh, Britney Spears Stronger, and and I did like three videos for Wu-Tang Clan, including Gravel Pit. So mm. like in the middle of like, and that, I think I did all that in like a week and a half, right? Mm. So that was like a crazy, crazy schedule for me. In the middle of that, uh, Moby calls up and wants a video. And I remember like, I don't fucking know how to even do a video at this point because I'm exhausted. And I had just been off three huge videos. So I said, well, what I'd like to do is I just like to make a video about making a video where Moby is, right. you know, cause all I remember about Moby at that point was that he was considered a, an artist per se. 
uh, like he was like the cool indie guy, whereas I was Mr. Britney Spears guy. And so my attitude was, okay, so let's, let's make sure that that is a brand that is being presented on screen. And I want to do a, a flip video where, where most movie videos are, is him in like a, in a gray shirt against a gray background. Uh, I want to start the video there and then reveal that the actual making of that video is, is a debaucherous Hollywood set. I didn't even write this thing down. I literally just set it on the phone and the record company accepted it and gave me uh, $700,000 or something like that and said, go make it. And so over two days, I literally improvised the entire video. There was nothing written. I just went ahead and had a bunch of casts put together. Uh, I had a stylist department go in there and make a bunch of wardrobe. I said I was going to burn some of that shit. And, um, and literally, I just placed everything around a set and started shooting shit. Wow. So just literally on the fly, even on the day, there was nothing scheduled or like shot listed or anything. Nope, just made it up, like shot by shot. That's so crazy because it it all links so effortless. Like, how did you make it all link together without knowing? I mean, were you just writing down what you had shot before and like thinking of the next thing to link from that, or like how did you practically do that? I no, I would just I would listen to the song and I just knew I wanted to do certain things in certain places and played the song in those places and then put people on set and, and experimented until something cool happened and then wow. just put it all together. That's crazy, man. Cause that's one of the, like, I mean, at least for me, I don't know if it registers for you, but at least for that time period, it was a very iconic music video that, that stayed on TV for a long time. And, and one, because the song was very good, you know, Moby was kind of popping, but this music video became like really iconic, you know, do you, do you know, sort of like, not beforehand, but like, can you kind of register sort of the iconic nature of some of your mu- music videos? Like, no. do you, do you feel that or no? No, not at all. I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> it's like, I, 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 I don't want to make the next thing. Um, and, uh, you know, cause it's weird. Um, uh, there's a piece of me like that, um, I don't know, uh, I'm just like I'm just like a uh, a loner, right? Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, it's funny. I, I have a family now, but it took like you know 45 years to get there. Right. But uh, up until that point, I'm just like this loner dude that just wanted to make films, and um, I didn't even make them the right way. I, I I just feel like I never had that sort of artistic credibility in what I was doing, anyways, because of the of the people I worked with. And people like now Britney Spears fans get mad at me when I say, well, she wasn't credible back then, but she wasn't, you know, she is now, she's a pop diva that, you know, when you, when you put like, there's a scene, there's a line in Indiana Jones, like the Raiders Lost Ark where, where Belloc shows a watch and he says, I bought it from, you know, a vendor out in the street for like, you know, a dollar. But if I buried in sand for a thousand years, now it's priceless. Mm. Well, that's what I feel like pop, culture kind of is like i make these things and at the time that you release them they're they're meaningless on a certain level they're worthless they, they just seem like any other piece of thing that you buy on the street bury it in the sand for 15 20 years you know then all of a sudden people look back at it with a patina of legitimacy that mm-hmm. wasn't there when it first came out and i, I just like don't fight that battle i just want to make the things that are cool and relevant for me and for whatever particular reason and then whether or not people accept it as iconic or not, it's a silly word, you know, like, um, right. like I cannot, I can't deal with people's, uh, um, approval rating of what I do. Right. Like, fuck right. that, you know, like you guys figure it out. I, I just want to make cool shit that I like. Right. Well, time really does tell like what stands. But you know? here's the thing. 
time makes everything seem cool. Like the shittiest thing that, that, that was made at any particular time suddenly looks, um, looks amazing 20 years later. I, as far as I'm concerned, people may only be thinking my shit is cool only because I did so much of it, you know, yeah. like they may not even know exactly what's cool about it. So I, right. I take everything with a grain of salt. And you're like tied to some of the biggest artists of that time. Yeah. And and by the way, there's a lot of that going on. Like a lot of times when people say a video is great and I watch it, even some, some of my lesser works or better works or whatever, it's only because they like the artist and they like the song. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with the video. Yeah. Going into like trying to get features or do more feature work. Like how, how did Torque come to you? How did that start? Uh, I, Torque was actually a part of a, like a very ugly process of breaking into Hollywood. And I had a very traumatic experience before I did Torque. I was on a movie called Confucius Brown with Martin Lawrence. Um, and that was in 1997. So it was literally within two years of being in Hollywood. I moved to LA in 95. I had started in Houston for, at, in 93. Actually, my first video was done in 1990, but I had started a company in Houston in 93. Took about a year and a half. Uh, I did like 30 rap videos, moved to LA. Uh, like just blew up within two years, did million dollar videos by 1997. And then uh, in 98, yeah, 97, 98, I, I went off and took a, took a break to try to make this $30 million feature film, which fell apart. Hmm. Um, as all these feature films do. Then I did another one called double O soul that was coming right after the tale of rush hour. For, it was a Chris Tucker movie that fell apart, but I really got screwed on that one. Um, and so finally I just realized that like, you know, movies that you want to do don't really matter. It's movies that are actually being made that matter. So you hmm. just kind of have to hop on a movie that is actually greenlit. Everything else is fake and, may, and most likely will not happen. Like a greenlit movie is what you really want to hop on. So they offered me Torque and I fucking hated the script. I thought it was so terrible, so stupid. Uh, I don't even like Fast and Furious, right? Like, <laughs> And I, I still don't. I think they're... T- like for, for every particular reason that people love these movies, for me, uh, on my base level, I just think they're just horribly shot and and horribly edited and 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 just horribly acted just Mm -hmm. just bad movies to me like it's not good and so what i wanted to do was make a purposefully bad movie but in a good way you know like and uh i I read the script and i was like okay so i hate the script but what i can do as a stylistic exercise because if you look at my videos at the time is is do the hyper real version of this movie Mm -hmm. where uh the jumps are are jumpier the colors are more colory, you know. Uh, if you cast good-looking people, make them really good-looking. If you if you cast an angry black guy, make him really angry. Just take everything and and if if the Fast and Furious movies are are what people think are cranked to ten, but I think they're actually cranked to five. I was going to crank it to like fifteen, right? And uh, and 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 it's the same thing. Ultimately, I did with Power Rangers in that you you don't. It's the comedy isn't that you're trying to make every scene funny. The comedy is that you're purposefully taking the serious elements of a movie and pushing it as far as you can to the point that it's funny in retrospect, you know, mm-hmm. like, like you just watched a movie where someone jumped a train or, or there's a race war essentially. And I just like that sort of perspective of that. Uh, anyways, that's not how I pitched it to Hollywood. Uh, I just wanted to make a really cool action movie for them. But once I got on board, I thought I could work within it and just like do my own shit, like as I do on a music video, mm. it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, they have script supervisors that literally like snitch on you every day. Like, <laughs> like Joseph went off script and then they give you a phone call and they say, why did you go off script? And next thing you know, this fucking snitch is on you the whole day. Like, like literally, like I remember like making the movie and, 
and she would um, she would start calling in the student and go, Joseph crossed the line on on this shot, and he crossed the 180 degree rule, and all sorts of crazy Whoa. fucking shit. And I just was like, suddenly, I just realized I got myself in a bad situation, and I um, I, I thought, okay, well, this will probably be my last Hollywood movie. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm. Uh, I can either do two things. I can either play political and make a bad movie, or I can just make the bad movie the way I want to make it. So I just went balls out, and um, and you know, the movie that people saw was actually seventy percent of what I wanted, which is still a success because they wanted zero percent of my seventy percent. Hmm. But they they actually reduced the 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 craziness of it by thirty percent. So if you can imagine what the original intent was, it was even crazier than what you saw. Right. Why did they do that? Did they did they have a reason? Because it was crazy. It was like insane. It's like the audience was like, what the fuck is this? We, we test screen it. And they go, they go, this is the most fucking like discombobulated crazy shit I've ever seen. Like, you know, why is he playing Guns N' Roses in the middle of a fight in, in Quiet Riot? And, and you know, why is this woman flying 50 feet in the air being shot by a bullet? That's <laughs> like right, stupid. Right. You know, like, whatever. This musical break is brought to you by Musicbed. called AM Architect. Daniel Stanish and Diego Chavez worked together on this music from across the country. Daniel living in California and Diego in Colorado. They each supply their own layer to the music. In the end, there's an analog meets electronic style that always feels subtle, never trying to be too much in your face. You can check out more AM Architect at musicbed.com. And just for good listeners, they're offering 20% off your next purchase. Just remember to use coupon code GOOD at checkout. This episode is also sponsored by Film Supply. Film Supply's footage has been highly curated by experts to save you time on every edit. Film Supply is a highly kept secret by agencies, editors, and filmmakers alike. They have super easy to use search tools in any resolution format to match your film. I love Film Supply because it's not about finding something that just fits. It's about having options to choose which is the best for the story. Go to filmsupply.com for more info. And just for good listeners, they're offering three free clips when you sign up and 20% off your next project with coupon code GOODPODCAST. It seems like it kind of took you another five or six years to be able to make another feature, you know, but within that time doing obviously music videos for the same caliber of artists and stuff, it felt like the tension was kind of like, it, it felt like it was a hundred percent yours. Am I assuming correctly? Oh yeah. I mean, um, detention is an example of making something off the Hollywood grid Right. for a decent amount of money with absolutely no Hollywood interference. The only interference that Hollywood gave me were uh, the agents trying to tell me what I could and could not do with their clients and mm. and all that shit. But other than that, uh, I, I spent my own money on it. I lost a couple million dollars on it. <laughs> and uh, I just made it exactly the way I wanted to. I feel like when I, when I finished that detention, aside from some fucking stupid-ass special effects, I could never get to the level that I wanted because mm-hmm. uh, uh, the... Uh, just I just couldn't get people of competence to necessarily do what I needed to do, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I um 
I, I felt like I made the movie I wanted to make, like just like a hundred percent on a spiritual level. Maybe not ninety, not maybe not a hundred percent on a technical level, but on a spiritual, conceptual, artistic level. I got there, and I, I felt right. super happy about it. Yeah, the tension is is from you, you can't look away for like eight seconds and then come back. That's that kind of movie, you know. Like there's every single shot is like is saying something is pushing you towards the next thing, you know, like where were you in like uh Christopher Probst? Where did you guys start on that? Like he was doing music videos for you and, and stuff, but like it felt like it had a very specific visual style that wasn't necessarily what you were doing in music videos. How did you guys kind of come to that? It, it, but it is on a weird level, you know, like if you, the movie, I, the music video I shot right before detention, literally like, I think three days before I even started detention was mm-hmm. look what you made me, uh, oh, no, not look what you did. Sorry. Uh, love the way you lie by Eminem. Right. right so if right. you actually look at the cinematography in Eminem, uh, on that video and detention, if you just crank the chroma a bit more on that video, uh-huh. it's, it's literally the same lenses and the same compositional style and the same flares and all that stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think, uh, I think the way I came to it is that, uh, I had a theory of filmmaking, um, and I still do, but it changes a little bit by a little bit, sometimes with massive shifts, depending if I have a a new insight, but like when I made Torque, I had a theory called geometric editing, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and it has to do with vectors and patterns and vectors and, and how the mind processes shapes. Um, hmm. when you compose things and how those things interrelate to each other. And by the time I did, uh, like detention, I had added a theory of emotional cadence to that in terms of what the colors of emotions are to particular shapes and patterns and things like that. And, and the funny thing about probes is for most of my career, uh, I don't know if people really know this. I was a, my, my own cinematographer for a good chunk of it, right. especially when I started and, and if you look at my, my career, I, mean, I have on particular projects worked with some of the biggest DPs in the world, whether it's Darius Kanji or Paul Cameron or uh, Robert Ellswick. I mean, I've worked with a lot of big guys, but like 99% of the work I do um, is either self-DP'd or um, it's usually using someone that's going through essentially my own film school uh, where they, they come to me as a camera assistant and then I train them to shoot second unit. And, right. then, and then eventually they move up to first unit. Uh, and Probst is one of those guys that moved through the ranks. He started as an AC for me and moved all the way through that. But before that, there were other guys. And I always, I usually always have a second, um, like DP underneath, like the first DP, who's kind of like a, a Padawan or an, uh, like a Sith underneath the Sith right. that's ready to kill the other Sith, you know. <laughs> and then they become the uh, the uh, the DP. Um, so, like by the time I got detention, it just feels like it's sort of my bag of tricks up until that point in music videos. Why do you, is it, is it just a mentorship thing or is it something else? Control. Interesting. I don't, I don't love giving away the visuals of what I do to some random dude that I paid a lot of money to. Um, it feels like I'm not doing anything and it, it, cause it feels like what, and I've been at different production companies and the attitude a lot of these production companies is in terms of what they think a director is, they think a director is just a tastemaker, right? He just works mm. with like crew members and he has amazing taste whatever the fuck that means and all the director has to do is just be on top of the pile and make a couple random decisions about how an actor is or what casting is and essentially it's it's like the it's it's a fucking douchey la perspective of art 
Because what do rich people in LA do when they think they're artists? They, they, they hire an interior decorator right. and, 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 and they, along with the interior decorator, they decorate their houses and have the best art and the best couch and the best, but they're, they're not artists. They're just buying shit with money. And they think a director is essentially just a, a person that, that hires an interior decorator. You're just like the way that they would do it. Like as much as they're buying a director, they think the director buys a DP and an editor and it all kind of magically comes together because we all have great taste. It's the douchiest most yeah. awful perspective of filmmaking I've ever seen. No, a director has to know about cameras. A director has to know about editing. A director has to know, you know, how light work has to know how like, you know, a, a, an actor interrelates with uh, like a camera, uh, where an angle is, what a movement is, mm-hmm. you know, what progressions of editing is. A director should know that stuff like at a fundamental core. And that has been my obsession for the last 30 years, but every fucking production company just wants me to sit back and, uh, and be a tastemaker, whatever the fuck that means, you know? So no, like, I don't think that my perspective of hiring uh, or training people to be DPs is a weird thing. I think that should be the norm. You know, a director should only be a director if they know all the other jobs. Otherwise, you're just a fucking dilettante um, interior decorating. Can you look back at your younger self when you were, like, signing to your first production company and, like, wish that you had done something else? I guess you could have some regret over the things you do, uh, but when it comes to career choices, no, not really, because um, I, I take like the journey as as both the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. So if there's bad things that happened and you you realize them, I would not frame it from the perspective of how would I have changed um, what I did then, but more like what did I learn off that, mm-hmm. so I can I can alter things in the future, you know. Yeah. So, for instance, an example is uh, when I've signed my like my early contracts, uh, I I had this thing because I felt so guilty about reinvesting my stuff back into my uh, my videos. A lot of early videos, as everybody does, you don't make much money off it. One, you're getting paid like shit, and two, most likely you're throwing the money back into the video. And and, and when it when it's like a twenty five thousand dollar video, that two thousand bucks does make a difference. It's exam. It's like 10% of the budget. And you, it, it's the difference between like getting a crane or a dolly or a Fisher dolly, you know, it's like, or maybe one more grip to, to be able to like speed up the process a little bit. Um, but what I did do in the early days is that I knew I was going to have to reinvest all that stuff. I knew the companies would not want to reinvest that stuff. So I had this deal just to be, uh, just, just to get them off my back. Uh, the deal was, if I went over budget, I would split the over budget with them 50%, you know? So like if I went over 2000 bucks, then I would put a thousand bucks, they put a thousand bucks, everybody's happy. And I could get the video I wanted because ultimately I don't want to stick around doing 25, $50 video. I want to get to million dollar videos and that's the way to do it. Um, but on the flip side, uh, to make them happy, I would go, if the video came under budget, um, I don't get any of that underage. You just keep it all, you know? Mm-hmm. And my perspective was that that would make it more enticing and to let me do what I want. And they would appreciate the fact that, that, um, that I'm being so, um, so, uh, God, uh, so, so le- uh, lenient with, uh, with that, that, that I'm being so generous. Right. 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 Uh, no, you end up working for like greedy people. And so they don't take it as like, Oh, he's being generous. They think like he's a sucker. And, um, and I'm not going to even count any of those underages as, as, as profit. I'm just going to exclude that. And I'm only going to look at what he actually spent on the videos as a loss. Right. Mm-hmm. So in other words, at the end of the year, 
they're like, well, Joseph spent, you know, he did 10 videos and he put in his fees and our fees for, you know, like 20, 20,000 bucks. Uh, forget the fact that we made like, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and hundred just on all the other side, Joseph lost us $20,000 that he should have made us. That's the position they take. So if I had to teach myself anything off that particular lesson is don't work with thieves and work with people that actually understand what you're trying to do and what your intent is. And that's super important in terms of, of working with people. Like you've got to work with people that, that, uh, that don't intend to do you harm. Right. I think a lot of directors, especially young directors probably see it as this kind of shiny thing, you know, but, um, I think that's why I ask, I, I want to get a good perspective of someone who's been through a lot of different production companies. And I mean, do you feel like, you know, how to pick a home now, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm actually not sure you left. Uh, well, it's just, I, it's folded. Um, okay. And they were actually a really good production company. Um, uh, and they were, they're really great people to work with actually. But, uh, when they folded, uh, what I did, I don't want to get too much of the nitty gritty of this stuff sure. because it's kind of personal, <laughs> but, uh, I put out there in the business that there are terms that I wanted, huh. uh, like a minimum that I wanted to make a year and certain sort of uh, conditions to, to meet those minimums. Um, and I made it very clear what I wanted. Um, and, um, so all the production companies called me and almost every one of them like said, yeah, we'll do that. But they all sort of like changed the terms to, to sort of be beneficial for themselves, you know, or like, like they're trying to hit my terms, but in some weird convoluted way. Right. Uh, but there's a uh, supply and demand. They, they were like, fuck you. We're going to do this. Uh, just come over and you'll get exactly what you want. And let's, let's get past this and let's go do some work. And so, you know, that's, I'm with them and, and they, they kept to their word. They're amazing. That's such a good story because I think you, you, you kind of, said, I'm not going to leave this up to anybody else really. Like you is, do you find that like kind of the, the more, uh, further along in, in your career that you find yourself, like it, it is more about just control and like controlling what I do. And, and is that sort of what you're after now? It's just a hundred percent control over whatever you're doing. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, uh, that would be insane. Um, mm -hmm. considering that I make music videos and commercials, like, like, you know, the thing that we have to understand about our business is that it is business and we are work for hires. So ultimately, if you have the attitude that I just want to do things completely my way, mm -hmm. you're just never going to get anywhere in this business. You're going to end up uh, isolating yourself and you're not really paying attention to what it is that they're hiring you for. When you do a commercial, you're not making an art piece for your reel. You're trying to sell cars and, or cell phones right. or cigarettes, whatever the hell, whatever product that you did, ultimately some company out there is hiring you to be the spearhead for their branding. And so that is your agenda more than anything else. Now in the business, uh, we, we don't want to appear soulless. And so you have a lot of people that do award ceremonies and we, we go up on stage in France and we pontificate about the great art we're doing mm -hmm. and, and how we're, how we're enriching people by selling more cars this way. But no, at the end of the day, you are a, uh, you're in advertising and that is what you do, period. Um, and that is why they give you a lot of money. You're, you're just, you're there to sell more product. Now, um, as an artist, I take a different tact to how I justify what I do. I look at it as experiments, in uh, hmm. craft, like, like if the agenda is to sell a ton of records 
or a ton of cars and you have a creative, I, I look at it less as this particular piece of filmmaking is, uh, is the, the grand statement on life, but more like, like there's a tactic or there are in my, in my box of tools, whether it's uh, my actual filmmaking skills or my philosophical perspectives on on um, social dynamics, mm-hmm. um, or, or even my wisdom in terms of how I think humans interact, can I, you know, collate all that stuff and and create something that achieves what they want, but but be predictive about how I use my craft to get there. Mm. So um, so ultimately, it's very rewarding for me as an artist when it succeeds and it does what I intended it to do. And then what I'll do then is that once I learn that particular piece of information of how I achieved that in that, that project, um, they're all happy with what they, what they did. I'm happy because I, I actually proved something about my craft and then I can take that. And then when I want to do something off the grid, that's a personal project like detention or bodied or power rangers, I just apply it. And now I, now I have the tools that they paid for me to learn to now adapt it to things I personally want to say. Yeah, I, I remember you said one time, just because something's entertaining doesn't mean it's art, you know? Yeah. Um, do you find yourself like, I, I think that's interesting that you, you, you kind of do it to take something from it for something else down the road, for something that you want to do sort of, you know, like bodied, which is the, the latest thing that you've done. Um, what do you think that you, what was kind of the, the one of the things that you brought into that, that you were like, I'm, I'm going to do this with, because I, I've learned this from, from the things that I've done and I want to apply it to this? Uh, well, it's a lot of stuff, really. Um, but I mean, I guess we have to be specific about one thing of what I brought from my experiences that applied to bodied that is specific to it. I mean, like there's some grand philosophical statements that I could make, but I'm going to be more specific on a very tactile thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual ability to make body in 23 days. Um, yeah. That was something I worked on over, since detention because detention took 66 days to make. And that cost me a shit ton of money personally. Right. And body that I was going to make for far less than detention. And and I, I had a certain level of reconfiguration of how I approached crew and, and scheduling that I worked on very hard for the next couple of years after detention. So that by the time I went to bodied, I was able to get like a, a, a relatively big looking movie for almost no money. And that, right. that had to do with the, with me sort of looking at like the latest digital cameras, the latest lights, um, how to get a smaller footprint. Um, so, cause bodied like 80% of the movie is not lit at all. Interesting. Like you'll see entire scenes where I, I put one, like l- literally one like lamp on the ground, like literally a practical lamp, and that's their key light. And right. and I, I would just light off that. So, so how much of this was was kind of your investment, and when did you kind of like bring Eminem into the picture, and how did that go down? Um, I brought in Eminem um, kind of early and kind of late. Like I, they, I, you know, I. I sent them the script early, and but I didn't ask them to come on board. Um, 
And then I made the movie and then I showed them rough cut. And then I asked them to come on board and help me with sound and music and Interesting. and all that stuff and, and editing notes and things like that. Right. It, it felt like you had started making this movie and it felt like it took a long time to release. Was there like a, was that extended for some reason? Well, yeah, it's still being released right now. Like, uh, we're going to have the, we're going to actually put it on iTunes in about two months, which took forever to get there. So YouTube, what did, what was the, the work with, uh, with YouTube? Was that not like a, an uh, acquisition or something? I mean, here's the hard part of the film business. It's such a fucking mess. It's, I, I, it's just, it's just incredibly frustrating to, to work because things are changing so fast. Mm -hmm. So when I made bodied, the industry is one way. It, It was like, you know, all these there's so many digital platforms out there and they all want content. So everybody who makes content is eventually going to get picked up by some digital platform. By the time I, I body went to market, all the digital con, uh, places had shut down and there's just a couple players and they all were like, now we're in the business of only making our own content. We're barely going to write anyone's content. You know, like at one point in independent, uh, like film festivals, everybody was, there's like sales and, and a million things. And by the time I got into the market, it was like, nobody was buying anything. So it was very frustrating. And then on top of it, uh, YouTube, when they bought body, they were like, we're YouTube red and we're going to compete with Netflix. And by the time body got actually released on, on, uh, YouTube's paywall, literally the month before it was getting released on the paywall, they switched strategies and they said, we're no longer going to be Netflix. We're never going to have a, a premium service where you have to pay to just to watch our content. We're going to release all our content for free. And we're going to we're going to be ad supported, but Body is contractually not an ad supported movie. So now it's stuck behind a paywall that no one's paying for, and oh. and, and like literally, it doesn't work like their other content that they're going to release for free with ads. So so now it's like in this limbo world. So now I had to renegotiate of that to, to get it released to like uh, the next stage, which is like you know uh, iTunes and things like that, where you can pay and actually see it outside of that paywall. And that took months because every time you do one of these things, like the lawyers get involved and. They, every time they, so one lawyer writes one red line, the other lawyer responds in a week or week and a half. <laughs> right. And so like literally like five or six passes and you're gone th- three months or down. Mm. That sounds, it sounds unfortunate. It sounds like you were kind of just like, you, you didn't even really have a stance. You kind of had to just put like your hands up and just say, what the fuck? You no, know? no, I, I, I'm fighting. Uh, so right, I went right. in there and I, I went to the agents and, and started negotiating and finding other companies to release it and, and get in there with contracts. All the stuff uh, I have no business doing, but in order to survive, I now have to become a contract lawyer. Mm. So it's like, uh, uh, welcome to the business. Yeah. What was some of your research like for that movie? Uh, watching a ton of battle rap. I think that's a bit, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think one of the big, big things that I did on that movie was like on detention. I reached out to a film critic named Mark Palermo, who lives in Halifax, Canada, in an igloo. And, um, and I said, let's make uh, a high school horror movie, right? And so we wrote that over a couple of years and then made it. But, he, you know, he, he wasn't necessarily like a professional screenwriter. He was just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a random Canadian dude. And if you know anything about Canadian dudes, they're all just kind of um, serial killers. So, uh, <laughs> so, so then on Bodied, uh, like, uh, I saw a battle rap with Kid Twist. You know Kid Twist? And I've heard the name, but I, I, I don't have a face to it. So, like, um, I, I, there's a great champion called King, uh, Kid Twist who's skinny and white and Canadian. Um, and he, he 
he, he, he wrote the most funny fucking raps. Right. And, uh-huh. and he went against uh, one of my actors in body dumbfounded, who's a great battle rapper in his own right. And all he did was racist jokes against dumbfounded. I mean, really terribly fucking like awful, but hilarious Asian uh-huh. jokes. <laughs> and, um, I reached out to him one day and I'm like, do you write? Because I, I heard that he did. He goes, yes. I said, let's write a script together. And it wasn't even going to be about battle rap. I just wanted to write maybe another horror movie or something. I don't know what it was, but eventually, um, I, I did this video for Taylor Swift called Wildest Dreams. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said it in Africa. <laughs> and it was just her on safari with Scott Eastwood. And I remember like making the video. And, and at, you know, the funny thing about making videos today, especially in pop, is you're always playing defense now because everybody is super sensitive about any sort of cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like pop has always been this this race war on a weird level, you know? It, like Jimmy Iving, you know Jimmy Iving, right? Yeah. Okay. So the, the, the founder of Interscope Records, the the guy who was running Universal at the time told me once pop music is black music. That's what it is. Um, and it's true. Like it, like it's based in the rhythm blues of like, you know, the thirties, twenties, you know, Elvis came in there with take black songs and then, and then, uh, whiteify him and, and essentially do the same things. But like, because he was a good looking white dude, everybody, and that's why black people sometimes don't like Elvis. And that's where the cultural appropriation that comes in. Um, but so pop has always been this sort of tense world where uh, it's spreading, um, you know, different types of ethnicities and race and all that stuff. But ultimately, for a a more gentrified audience, that's what pop is. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always been this tension. Uh, but with social media and the uh, the the, uh, the 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 specificity of how people now glom onto certain ideas, it's become much more like tangible of a, of an argument that people can have like, and, and confront each other uh, on, on just an immediate basis. Right. So it's really made pop music very, very tense on a certain level in terms of like, like call outs and offense and all that stuff. So anyways, um, I did this video in Africa and my biggest fear at that point was that Cecil the lion had been killed by some hunter. Right. So I, I didn't want to make Taylor look like she's going to Africa to go hunt lions Right. So, so I put a ton of effort trying to put like, you know, photography there. So it looks like she was on a photography expedition and all that. And it took place in the fifties. And, um, and, and, you know, and I'm conscious of this. I was like, shit, but at the same time, it's, it's white people in Africa. Like, yeah. how do you, how do you sort of justify that? Because do you, do you avoid that? Do you, uh, do you just sort of like do it? But then there's movies like the African queen and, and, and classic movies out there that, that, that are, that are based in Hollywood. This is supposed to be an old Hollywood movie. Um, so, you know, I was conscious about trying to, um, like put black people in there, um, uh, you know, in, in certain places, but then also if you, if you like, for instance, if you made it a black director, does it look like a whitewashing history and, mm-hmm. and making it seem like it's all, it was so complicated. The, the, uh, the permutations of offense just went on for infinity so ultimately I was like, I'm just going to put like certain people and crew members as African, but you know, the weirdest thing is I had one actress that was supposed to be an African American actress in the, in the thing. I thought that was a pretty good call. She didn't show up on the day. So, <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't, she didn't fucking show up on the day. So I was like, okay, well there, there went that particular thing that I was thinking about. Anyways, when the video came out, um, you know, uh, of course, uh, just her being her, she always gets flack for everything. It's, she's like America's favorite punching bag at times. For, for whatever issues they have at the point. Um, 
the 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 whole sort of uh, Taylor Swift supports apartheid thing came out, right? And I thought this was just awful because knowing Taylor, like she's the sweetest person, like and um, right. and like doesn't have a racist bone in her body. And not only that, like um, and I hate saying people of color because I'm I'm quite white in the skin tone, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's I guess that people call me because I'm Asian. I'm, I'm a person of color. Well, the reality is the director is a person of color. Uh, my AD is black. My editor is black. My right. you know a lot of my crew are black. Like little my AC is black. It's like I, I work with a lot of African Americans, but but I don't even think about it. You know, it's not I'm right. purposely hiring them. But we all were there. Nobody fucking was offended on set. And trust me, if if they thought I was doing, it, they would fucking call me out in two seconds. Nobody right. did. We didn't even think about it. And so. I was just getting offended that they were calling her racist. I don't care if they call me racist because I'm used to like people getting offended at shit I say, but her, I was like, that was fucking unfair. So I would say things and no matter what I said, people would just like hop on and just like sort of pile on. And I thought, okay, there's a movie there. And that's when I decided, Oh, uh, let me make a movie about the way that social media uh, has a problem with language and, and race and politics and sex and, and pylons and things like that. And the best, and I, the best way to do it was through battle rap. Cause otherwise uh, you're making a movie about people typing on the keyboards, which mm-hmm. is boring as fuck. So body is essentially uh, a, tra- a transformative version of um, social media um, with battle rap standing in as a visual metaphor for how people talk online. you go i mean paying for your own films and stuff how did you get people on board um in these in some of these roles obviously some of these are like um actual battle rappers you know like arsenal's in there and even people like Charlemagne the god and stuff like i'm sure that some of these were like friends but um how did you what was your thought process about finding callum and and making that character well sort of exactly how you the thing to i learned off detention and even twerk is that you need a a movie star in your mm. your uh, your independent film for it to get taken seriously for the most part otherwise you're just rolling dice um yeah. and my intent was to pass it out to a bunch of movie stars that are in their 20s and we did we sent it around we sent the script around but because the the lead white guy has to say the n-word and say all these horrible things mm-hmm. like every motherfucker turned us down because they thought yeah. like they just don't want their client saying these things um, so I guess if I were an agent, I would do the same. If that's literally my only function in life is to make sure that my client is a cash cow. Um, but it's, it says something really terrible about the state of art per se mm. and, uh, and how people are afraid of, 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 uh, being branded racist. Um, and that's kind of what the movie's about. Yeah. It's funny why it's, it's, it's sort of played out right in front of you. I, I've learned that I've learned that white people specifically, like, you can call them cracker. You can call them like white trash You can call them a million things. Uh, what they don't want to be called is racist. Even the racists don't want to be called racist. You know, yeah. like yeah. you're like a white supremacist. They'd rather have you be called a white supremacist than a racist. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's just weird. So none of the white actors that it was written for uh, wanted to be called racist. They didn't, but the only person that would love to be called racist is Caleb Worthy. Now that's fucking weird because he's a Disney star. And, uh, and all he's known for is being this happy go lucky um, right. Disney kid, uh, not and by the I'm joking. It's not that he loved being called racist. It's that he had no fear of it. He read the right. script and he understood it. And to me, that's like a true fucking homie, a real artist who who gets past the fear of that stuff and doesn't really 
pay attention to um, the ramifications of what people think about him and, and sees the story and wants to tell that story. That's a G. Yeah. What is the, what's the biggest lessons that you learn from paying for your own shit? Don't pay for it. Really? Yeah. Don't pay for it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like not expecting that answer at all, but that's uh, why? Because I've lost money on everything I've done. Mm -hmm. Um, Look, the good thing is I've learned things I would have never been able to learn if I I was doing it on someone else's dime because I had complete freedom on detention, on Power Rangers and body to do whatever the fuck I want. And that is a certain level of privilege. Now, people go, oh, Joseph just you know, can do whatever, he's rich. But here's the reality. Uh, I, I saved up my money. Um, I didn't spend it on anything. I would just take all this money and just put it in the bank. And I knew that I was just going to blow it. And and the weird thing is that if I had taken like a couple hundred thousand dollars as I did on, on Power Rangers and made a short film, people go, Joseph is fucking insane. How would he ever do this? That is the most insane. Why would he spend his own money on a short film? But if I took my money and bought a Lamborghini for $300,000, he'd go, Joseph is right. a gangster. Look at him. He's so <laughs> rich. He bought a Lamborghini. I want to be like Joseph one day. But yeah. Joseph spending money on a short film, that's insane. That shows how fucked up this business is. You know why? Because I think at the end of the day, people don't really believe in filmmaking. They really don't. They, they, when, you, when you perceive filmmaking to be just a taste-making exercise of yeah. hiring good people to do the art for you, they cannot conceive of anything of like a power just being anything but a vanity issue where you hired a bunch of crew members on your own dime to decorate a house. I'm not decorating yeah. a house. I'm building the fucking house. The way yeah. I work, I figure out the plumbing. I figure out the bolts. You know, it's like uh, I'm not just going in and um, turning this into a Mark Newsom house by buying a bunch of Mark Newsom. I am Mark Newsom. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's even looking looking back on like famous sort of like directors paying for their own shit. I mean, it's all throughout history, and and sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. You know, but I, it's interesting that you would say don't do it. Well, know? because let's let's face it, like a lot of people do it. I'm not the only person that does it. Right. But I I know in 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 my heart of hearts when I do it, I'm actively getting an artistic sensibility out of it and a learning process out of it that is deep and real on every level and everything I, I'm putting on screen, I'm, I'm absolutely exploring and trying to understand my craft. Right. Um, and I, you know, a lot of people that do it, they're, you know, it's just a party they're, they're They get yeah. to be, they get to play director for a couple months and, and, uh, and they go to Sundance and, and sit on a chair and get the adulation of everybody. And right. that's what they're in it for. Um, I fucking hate sitting in that chair at Sundance. Like that, that is, uh, absolutely painful for me but i have to do it because you got to sell whatever the hell you just put a lot of money into right what would you rather be doing than sitting there right now i'd rather go play with my baby you know like like that's, uh, that's an interesting how does that kind of change your life and like what you're taking and how much time you're spending on stuff it, it has uh it's strangely enough it's it hasn't impacted me as much as i thought it would mm-hmm. because i'm already a night person you know, like I do most of my work after midnight. I've wrote, written like 95% of my treatments at three in the morning. Yeah. So I have this great schedule with my wife right now where, uh, <laughs> she where, gets to sleep. Well, she, well, during the day we have a nanny. So, yeah. uh, but like say for instance, I wake up about 11 or 12, then from 12 to five, I, I, I do all my busy work. Right. 
mm-hmm. return emails, do casting selects, all that shit that's like kind of using your brand, but not really using your brand. It's just like the mechanics of what you have to do and conference calls and right. all that director stuff, right? Then between five and 10, I spend time with the family and the baby. And I'm hopping back and forth because I work out of my home. Right. But for the most part, it's like more devoted to family time between five and 10. And then from 10 to like four or five in the morning is my free time, which is essentially mm-hmm. what I've had anyways. And that's when I, I write screenplays or, or, or think treatments or work on stuff. And so on a weird level, having a baby hasn't really affected me at all because the baby sleeps at 10 to, you know, till six in the morning. I mean, it definitely, it all falls and it's a wake up call to your life yeah. because you, you know, what a lot of people, especially if I told myself, you know, when I was younger that I would care about something more than I cared about myself. Right. Uh, it's, it's just an inconceivable thing. Like, yeah. like you just like, like, like really like some, something is going to like matter more to me than, than myself. Yeah. <laughs> That's bullshit. But like, once you have that kid and every day that kid interacts with you, um, you just realize that, yeah, absolutely. That kid's life is way more important than yours. So yeah, uh, paying for my own movies is out of the question now. So dude, the last thing I wanted to ask was if you wouldn't mind sharing the, uh, the advice that Anthony Michael Hall gave you about directing. Oh God. Well, I, I can't because that's, that's a personal stuff. Yeah. <laughs> a bunch of stuff actually. Um, you know, the one thing that was really interesting that I can, I can share with you is that he, um, that, like that, uh, John Hughes, he would actually take his actors and then make them all have dinner together. Like before the shoot. Yeah. Make them really bond, make them really like become a unit, Hmm. which, you know, it sounds like a, like an easy piece of advice, but try to get a bunch of actors together. Like, uh, it's a little tricky. And some actors are like, if they're super, they, they have these hierarchies, like I'm the superstar and this and that. I think, I think creating an ensemble when you're doing an ensemble piece is really important. That's what I did. I would take these guys and put them together and, really get them flowing as a family. Hmm. That's a good piece of advice. Well, Joseph, thanks so much for coming on, dude. I really appreciate it. Sure, no problem. This episode was mixed by Christian Stropko, or as I like to call him, my dear friend, Christian. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at goodthepodcast. 